Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Romans, the first chapter. It's been good to worship together already. I enjoyed watching little Coleman dance to a mighty fortress. It's our God. That's the type of Baptist church I want to be a part of. I want to be a part of a Baptist church that permits dancing and sings all the verses to a mighty fortress is our God. That is a dream Baptist church right there. Um, well, as you're turning to Romans 1, let me give you a little context of what we're going to be doing together this morning. Uh, back in the spring, we as a pastoral team went to a, uh, a pastor's conference and there we were encouraged to lead our congregation in adopting a resolution on marriage and human sexuality. Um, we then went to another conference late in the summer and we were again encouraged to adopt a resolution on that at a different conference. So um, we said we should do this. The due date um, for that uh, resolution, for us writing that, uh, was today. And so uh, we thought, well, it would be a good idea to preach a sermon that kind of introduces that. So I'm actually going to be preaching a very similar sermon that I did two and a half years ago here out of Romans 1, as I think it helps do that. And then we're going to conclude, I'm going to read to you a summary of that resolution. Next steps for that for us is we're going to, in a deacons meeting on Tuesday night, present this to the deacons. uh, And then uh, hopefully by the end of this week, we'll actually be sending the full draft to you. And our goal is by December the 3rd, in our next members meeting, uh, that we as a congregation can adopt this as our resolution on uh, on marriage and human sexuality. So uh, that's uh, that's what's before us this morning. Um, so if you're thinking, wow, is this what I got myself into? This is what you got yourself into. All right, well, I'd planned at this point to read the text, but Pastor Chad actually put that uh, as our um, confession and pardon text. So we've already read that text together this morning. So I'm going to just open us up in prayer and we'll dive into Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 together. Let's pray. God, this is an awesome task, this thing called worship. And Lord, we just want to thank You again that You have not asked us to do this in our own wisdom. That would be just foolish. But You've been kind enough to give us a Word. You've been kind enough to give us the inspired, inerrant Word of God. And we trust it. And so, Father, I know this morning that this is going to land in a lot of different ways on a lot of different hearts. I know what this text is after. I know how it's landed on my heart. And so God, I am praying that everyone who is here, divinely appointed in Your time and in Your providence, that God, You would use Your Word to create and grow Your people. Lord, we're asking for that. We do not want the wisdom of this world. We want the wisdom of God. And so we only know one place to turn for that. And that's the Word of God. Let it teach us and grow us this morning. We ask this to You, Father. We ask it through the name of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, that You now would bring us Your Word by Your Spirit. Amen. Um. We as a pastoral team believe that a resolution 
on sex and marriage is needed, just like many other uh, resolutions are going to be needed, as our culture quickly diverges from various biblical assumptions to which it would at least have given lip service to uh, even just years ago. So I want you to do a, a, a project with me here. If you go back 200 years, just 200 years in the West, and you consider a young man or a woman and the decisions that they would face, you will be startled to find how few there are. For even the decision of who to marry would not have been a choice in the West 200 years ago. That would have been arranged by your parents. So just get that in your mind. Now let's compare that today. Let's take a little tyke. We're going to call him Elmer. Consider all the choices that lay ahead for Elmer. Especially if his parents buy into a secular worldview. So let's just walk through a couple of these. Elmer will first need to choose if he wants to remain a boy or if he would rather be a girl. Let's say he chooses to remain a boy. He now must choose whether he wants to pursue romantic relationships with girls or boys or both. Let's say he chooses girls. Now he must choose if he ever really wants to marry or if he's okay with just, you know, forever cohabitation. Let's say our conservative Elmer that we now have chooses to marry. Now he's got to choose who he'll marry. Let's say he picks Abby. So now we've got Elmer and Abby, and they must choose whether they want to have children or not. Let's say they want children. Now they must choose if they want to freeze the eggs and enjoy their youth and only become parents later on, or if they want to go ahead with it now. Let's say they choose not to freeze them and they choose to uh, go about it naturally. Now they must choose if they want to sort out the DNA on their own or with the help of science to weed out any embryos that look like they may be trouble or if they will just go with the embryos and the resulting children that come. Now this is just one example. Think of every choice we made there. This is not some conspiracy theory. It's not a futuristic novel. Welcome to life as we know it. Now, that it feels odd or different in and of itself, it's actually irrelevant. So Google, iPhones, those felt odd and irrelevant 25 years ago, but they're with us now, and there's nothing wrong with them. By the way, I'm not sure if I'm right on the 25 years ago, but you could Google that on your iPhone and find out for sure. The point is just that just because it is a change doesn't mean that it's wrong. But the question is, if you hold, and this is the big if, everything lands right here. If you hold that the Bible is true, that it is the Word of God, then you have to ask yourself, what does it say and how does this line up? And we should be very thankful that God, in all of His wisdom, is incredibly explicit when it comes to sexuality in the Bible. Therefore, let's let it speak and let's listen. One of the interesting things about the text this morning is going to be this. How it lands for you is actually going to be very dependent upon your age. I'm going to guess. I know I'm generalizing 
But I'm guessing that if you're over 50, you will hear the text today and wonder why we even need to address something like homosexuality as it seems obvious to you that it's so wrong. You may even use adjectives like gross or perverse to describe it. On the other hand, if you are under 30, now hear this, listen to the stark difference. If you're under 30, I think this is going to be a really uncomfortable sermon. Why? Because it's going to feel discriminatory, it's going to feel judgmental, it's going to feel wrong that somebody should call another person's sexual preference wrong. And then if you're like me, between 30 and 50, you're just utterly confused. Um, uh, it, somewhere on there, you are going to land. But again, this is what I'm saying. This is why we say it over and over. We believe in the Bible. We preach the Bible. We have one question, one question only when this pulpit is entered into. What does the Bible say? Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. This is Paul, the apostle, uh, writing to... You got it, the Romans. Um, Romans chapter 1, 16 17. For I, this is Paul, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, to the Gentile, to the non-Jew. For it, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Alright. Recall that the word gospel means good news. So Paul says that the good news is that there is power to save in Christ. And in the good news, the righteousness, that is the rightness of God, is revealed. And how is it revealed? How is it that you and I are connected to this good news from faith to faith? But there's good news because there's bad news. The bad news is what most of the rest of this chapter focuses on. And that is this. The bad news is... That God's wrath, His anger against all ungodliness is shown to men who stand against His truth, who suppress truth. So God, according to Romans chapter 1, is angry because man has perverted the truth of God. Let that land. He's angry because man has perverted the truth of God and lives wickedly. That's 16 through 18, verse 19. For what can be known about God... It's plain to them. God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature, they have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Here Paul argues that man cannot claim that he doesn't understand that there is a God because they can look out at creation and creation itself testifies that there is someone, something more powerful than us. We can see His power. We can see that something is eternal, very different. And as such, man has no excuse for not turning and following God. Verse 21, For although they knew God, 
They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Even though men knew God must exist, they ignored God in order to pursue the creation. So make sure you catch the chain. It's a logical argument. He says there's a creator who created. The creation of which we are part is to look at the other creation and go, no way, no way we did this. There must be a God. So the creation is given to us as a gift to lead us to the Creator. So that we would be in awe of God's power and majesty. But instead, man kept his eyes purely on the horizontal, purely on the creation, and ignored the Creator. So so Paul says God made man to love God and respond by acknowledging God. And instead, this is how he responds. He responds by just ignoring God and loving the creation. Paul says he's a perverted lover. Man's a perverted lover. He doesn't look to the maker. He just looks at the thing made. He's perverted. He thinks he's being smart. Paul says he's a fool. We are fools. Verse 24, Therefore, God gave them up in their lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever, truly, or amen, Paul says. So Paul has described why God is angry at man. Now he's going to describe how God has rendered judgment. Now before we look at what God has done in His judgment, let's go back and see why He does it. It's described in verse 25. Why does God judge? Because man exchanged the truth about God, namely that God is worthy of all a man's attention and praise, and He loved and worshipped the creature. That's a lie. Paul ends 25 by saying, God is He who is to be blessed forever. Amen. It's as if Paul is saying, it's God. He's the one to be blessed forever. Amen. And we exchanged Him for the creature. What? Fools. And now verse 24. So how does God respond? He responds by making man. This is so interesting, the logic and the argument that that Paul's listening. Just catch this. He responds by making man a perverse lover of creation. In order to show man his perversion in his relationship to God, God hands man over to a perverted way of loving the creation. That's the whole point of what he's doing. It's a judgment of God. You're perverted... In the sense that you do not worship the Creator, but you stay here on the creation, I'm going to judge you by now having you love the creation in a perverted way. Surely, you have thought of sexual sin, sexual abuse, sexual temptation, sexual crimes, and thought, this is so messed up. 
it is messed up. Because God judged us for, for being perverse lovers of God. When we look at how messed up we are sexually, we should be reminded how messed up we are in our love of God. It should strike us with strong cords of humility, if we're honest. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity. It is amazing what Paul is packing in here. I mean, only Paul could pull this off. Let's define a couple terms together. I really want you to catch this. First, let's define the term sexual disposition. Every person has a sexual disposition. A disposition of any any kind describes how you're inclined to act. So prior to fall, man had a right moral disposition. That is, man was inclined to act in a morally right way. Let's take an example of baseball. A player can either hit the pitch foul or fair. Some players are disposed or inclined to always hit it fair. Other players are disposed and inclined to hit it foul. Others are like me and disposed to strike out. Um, But we're not going to think of me here. I don't need that for my analogy. So, if we use this analogy with a moral disposition, we can say prior to the fall, we were all inclined to hit it fair. That is, we never hit it foul. Man always acted rightly because he did not sin before the fall. He always hit it fair. But after the fall, catch this, after the fall, immediately everything changed. Paul says that every one of us now has a broken sexual disposition. Every one of us, which is part of the judgment of God, because we are perverse lovers of God. You know this in the fall, if you remember the accounts. Do you remember our foreparents, Adam and Eve? What happened to them immediately after the fall. What was the consequence they immediately noticed about themselves? They're naked. What's going on there? And this isn't just a small just throwaway. We see it at the end there uh, of the account. And then as you march on through chapter 3, God is dealing with their nakedness. Who told you you're naked? Here's the key. When the fall happened, so with it came a broken, flawed, Sexual disposition. We began to think on sex wrongly. Alright. Keep that in mind. So, let's consider the idea of a right sexual disposition. I find this really helpful. Kind of. You're also going to hopefully find it convicting. If you actually get what a right sexual disposition is, it really helps understand sexual sin. God created man with a right sexual disposition, with a glorious purpose. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that God created marriage to be a picture of His love for His people. Remember, you got Christ is the bridegroom and who's the bride? The church are. The church is. We are. The church are. We, we are. And He created sex and marriage, according to Genesis 1 and 2, to be a a picture of the closeness, the intimacy, the celebration of the joy of marriage. So I want you to see there's a chain of pictures here. 
God intended marriage to show to the world his love for his people. Got it? Got that picture? That's what marriage was intended for. God intended sex in marriage to show the greatness and the joy and the intimacy of marriage. So sex celebrates marriage and marriage celebrates the love that God has for His people. There is actually a chain of worship going on in the idea of sex. It's not a physical thing merely. It is to lead us, the creation, all the way to love the Creator. But you take marriage out of it and the chain is completely broken. You cannot get to worship. Instead, you get to sin. Sexual fulfillment outside of marriage completely severs the chain. It cannot point to the greatness of marriage. Therefore, it cannot point to the love of God's people. I wish like crazy we would have never had a campaign called True Love Waits. I wish instead we'd have had something like true worship weights. The primary problem with premarital sex is not that it taints one's relationship with a future spouse. The primary problem is that it taints your relationship with an eternal God. A person who has a right sexual disposition is inclined to only entertain sexual thoughts and engage in sexual actions inside of a covenant marital relationship. And just think of the weight of that. If you have, and you don't, but if you had a right sexual disposition, you would not have thoughts that you would entertain or any action that does not have, that is not fully within the marital context if you had a right sexual disposition. That might feel foreign to you. It it does because it's not you. It's not me. We're broken. We're going to get to that. Jesus had a right sexual disposition. This does not mean that Jesus did not have sexual desires. That actually be heresy. Because we know that Jesus was fully God and He was also church fully man. That's exactly... I don't feel good about that. That's a major point of our doctors. He's fully God and He's fully... Man, all right. I don't feel nearly as good as I want to, but I need to move on. All right. If he's fully man, he has sexual desires. The key is he never, ever acted upon them. How do we know that? Because he was never married. He had no context for them. To act upon them and have no context for them would be sin. And one of the other major points of our doctrine is that our Savior, our Lord was sinless. Okay, I think you're going to get to the severity of what Paul is saying here. Because of man's rejection of God, God hands every, let me say it again, every man and woman over to a broken sexual disposition. Which means, not only are we capable of hitting it foul, in regards to sexual temptation, it's much worse. We are inclined to do so. This might be a man who is inclined to look at a woman and entertain sexual thoughts about her regardless of whether she is his spouse. It might be a woman who is inclined to want to draw the attention or the sexual praise of a man regardless of whether she's married to him. This might be a person feeding their sexual desires by himself or herself, whether through pornography or other activities. What do all of these share in common? 
They make much of sex while not making much of marriage. It is always sinful. So given our broken sexual dispositions, we have to work hard to respond rightly to sexual temptation. Let me say that again. Oh, I wish this truth would have landed on me a long time ago. Given our sexual broken sexual dispositions, we, you and I, have to work to respond rightly to sexual temptation. That is what Paul is describing in Romans 1. All of mankind has been given over to the lust of their hearts. We honor God when we entertain sexual thoughts and engage in sexual actions within marriage. We dishonor God and our bodies when we do either of these outside of marriage. Hence, while Paul says dishonoring their bodies among themselves. How do you dishonor something? You use it in a way it was not intended to be used. Our sexual desires were created for one in only one context, marriage. Anytime we entertain any sexual thoughts or have any sexual actions outside of the context of marriage, we show evidence of a broken sexual disposition. To be clear, this room is full of folks with broken sexual dispositions. This sermon is being preached by one who has a broken, flawed sexual disposition. One who has failed on numerous occasions to only entertain sexual thoughts and actions in the context of marriage. There are probably as many different types of broken sexual dispositions as there are broken, fallen people. Brother and sisters, our struggles with sexual temptation should not be buried, they should not be hidden, and they should not go undiscussed. Romans 1, 24 and 25 tells us that sexual brokenness stands as evidence of our sinful hearts. And let me suggest that the struggle with sexual sin can be used by God to show us the depths of our sinful hearts. Kidding ourselves and one another about our struggles with sexual temptation means kidding about something that is much more important. And that is, our sinful hearts need for a Savior. I was reflecting this week how nothing has shown me my depth of sin, the depravity of my heart, my sincere need for a Savior, like struggles and and flaws with a, with a broken sexual disposition, I have no doubt that I am a man in need of a Savior. So I want to free us. I just want to free us as a congregation to declare that everybody here has a broken sexual disposition. If you've landed in this room and you go, you have no idea, I am telling you, you're in the right company. None of us are right on this. Everybody needs help. Now, with all that in mind, (laughs) I told you it would be one of those sermons, right? Um, With all that in mind, Paul goes on to describe a specific category in the next verses. 
For this reason, verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women, were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So for this reason, because they are perverse lovers of God, God gives people, some people, over to a broken disposition that we typically describe as homosexuality. First, let us recall, I think I was careful to make this point, all of us have a perverse sexual disposition. Everybody. Except for Jesus. Second, Paul specifically describes the broken disposition of homosexuality because of the level of its perversion. He's using an argument from creation. Here's where he's going. He's saying homosexual acts are contrary to what God intended in creation. Every homosexual act dishonors the Creator. Is it by definition dishonors what was intended in design? This is just the clear teaching of Scripture. Anybody who's being honest in reading these, this text must walk away with this unless you have some reason you don't want it to say that. There's been a lot of research done on what is called the gay gene. Or we might say an attempt to link a homosexual disposition to an individual's biological roots, to their DNA. Now notice... That in light of Romans 1, much of this debate, it's just unhelpful. It seems obvious to me that people are genetically wired such that they are sexually attracted to those of the same gender. That just seems obvious to me. It also seems obvious to me that a lot of men are genetically wired so they lust over women who are not their wife. It seems obvious to me that a lot of women are genetically wired so that they desire to entice the sexual thoughts and attractions to those to whom they're not married. What do all of these share in common? Each one is wicked in the sight of God. Paul intends to argue that the presence of such a disposition is evidence that we are fallen. It does not give us an excuse to embrace it. Just because you have same-sex attractions, that does not give you an excuse to embrace them. I've used this analogy before, but I can remember in one day uh, in middle school, I was in health class and we were talking about various races, ethnicities, and their um, pathologies. And we got to Native Americans and half of me was very excited to hear about that. Uh, the other half was stuck in Germany. But anyway, no... Um, Half of me was excited to hear about that, and they said, you know, uh, Native Americans are very much predisposed to alcoholism. I thought, well, that's interesting. So then I go to history class, and long story short, we're studying part of uh, pre-revolutionary colonies and uh, pre-revolutionary war colonies. And um, I, long story short, I find out about the whiskey trade with the Native Americans and how pretty much Rhode Island was given over for a lot of whiskey. Now, I, not the brightest person, but I was able to put those together. So let me get this straight. My ancestors, predisposed to alcoholism, got drunk and gave away Rhode Island for some whiskey and beads. Whoa! I might want to stay away from alcohol. 
Uh, and I'm not kidding. I can remember in high school, by college, I was, uh, I was just past it, but I can remember in high school being offered alcohol on many occasions and thinking to myself, Rhode Island, dummy, Rhode Island, right? <laughs> you gotta be careful here, right? Um, and some of my friends, maybe they don't need to be as careful as me, but I gotta be careful here. Now, what would have been really dumb for me is to go get drunk on a regular basis, become an alcoholic, and tell somebody, you know, they told me in health class I was predisposed to be this way. I would think a sane person would say, well then, dummy, it would probably be a good idea to have stayed away, right? Just because we have a genetic tendency doesn't license us to follow in the sin. We are fallen. Don't be shocked by your genetic tendencies towards sin. Be shocked if you have a genetic tendency towards holiness. And if you have not figured that out, come hang out in the toddler ministry for just a little while. Alright. In all seriousness, in a room this size, especially in contemporary America, it would be really uh, naive to think that there are some who are present who do not have, or they're, they're not some present who have a same-sex attraction. What do I have to say to you? More importantly... What does the Bible have to say to you? First, realize that you're not alone in possessing a broken sexual disposition. That's yours. I've got mine. Turn to your neighbor. Talk for a while. You might want to introduce yourself. But they've got theirs. You're not alone. Second, remember that a person sins only when he embraces his broken disposition. The mere presence of inclinations is not sinning. At the same time, remember that it is a disposition. That means you're going to act that way unless you fight hard to do otherwise. Fourth, I do not, I do not want you to feel isolated or untouchable. Although it's true that all of us have broken dispositions, it's also very true that those are not always equal for all people. By diagnosing us all with broken sexual dispositions, I am not in any way saying blanket statement that we all have to do the same battle with sexual sin. That is a lie. Some of you are not going to have to battle nearly as much as others. But those who have to battle, you have no choice. you got to battle. I welcome the opportunity to sit and talk with anyone who's struggling with a homosexual disposition or any other broken sexual disposition. I welcome it. I will not be afraid of your brokenness, your wayward attractions, if you will not be afraid of mine. I warn you of the dangers of acting on the wrong attractions, on these desires, and I beg you, love me enough to warn me. And God forbid you give in to habitual, unrepentant action of these towards these desires, I love you enough to rescue you. And I beg that you be enough church to me to love me enough to rescue me. And I plead with you, do not listen to a broken world when they try to convince you that you are nothing more than your broken disposition. The world wants you to believe that people with a homosexual disposition must embrace it as who they are. Realize 
That is exactly right. If it were not for the cross of Jesus Christ. But because of Jesus of Nazareth and His death and resurrection, everything changes. You can be saved from your broken sexual sin. I am so thankful for Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Man, if after a sermon like this, this doesn't come like fresh water. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, (laughs) he's a new creation. The old's passed away. The new, it's come. All this is from God, who though who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God is reconciling the world to Himself. He's gathering one perverted lover after another, not counting their trespasses against them, (laughs) and entrusting to us a message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors of Christ. That's what I'm doing. I'm pleading. I'm ambassador of Christ to you this morning. God is making His appeal through me to you. I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin so that in us we might become the righteousness of God. The gospel is true and therefore you do not have to embrace your broken sexual disposition. Not because you are not broken, but because Christ was never broken. The good news of the gospel is the astounding news that the only one of us who was not broken willfully took the payment for all of us who are broken. And as a result, our trespasses are not counted against us. God reconciled us to Himself. That's the Gospel. That's why I do not understand with all my heart why conservative, Bible-believing, Gospel-teaching churches aren't at the front of the homosexual debate. We have the best understanding of where it comes from and we have the only answer for how it will ever be cured. And that is Jesus Christ. And then verse 32. Just in case you want to run and hide. Just because you want to act like this isn't your fight. Just because you think it would be easier to not deal with conflict. The Word of God is amazing. Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. Wow. Now do not hear that and say, oh, well, the homosexuals deserve to die. Hear that. We deserve to die. That's us. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Will we love one another to not give approval to our practicing of sin, what we call lost sin, heterosexual or homosexual, what we call premarital, extramarital sex, sin, we love each other enough to do business with it. I would finish with this one quick statement, and then we'll read the resolution and then we'll be done. I love the statement 
A church is never a museum of saints. Misunderstood it if you think so. It is a hospital full of sinners. That's what we are. We're just a hospital of one broken person telling another broken person, I found a physician and he's really good. Come on in. I'm going to ask now if I... A couple of you folks, guys down here, can you go over here? We've got the resolutions on the bench there. Can you pass those out? We decided to just do the summary of the resolution. It's front and back. One page, the actual resolution is about 16 um, pages. So uh, we thought it would be good to just read the whereas and the resolves of this draft. Remember, this is a draft. All we can do as a pastoral team is recommend it unto the members. The members themselves have to adopt it. All right. I think those are getting passed out. So let me read these to you before you pass out. Um, Whereas... The Bible teaches that the only right, true, appropriate expression of all sexual expression happens within the confines of a covenant marriage relationship. Whereas, any practice of heterosexual sexual expression outside of marriage is against God's created design and obstructs human flourishing. Whereas, the Bible clearly states that the practice of homosexual acts is always sinful and lies outside of God's created order, perverting the grand design of God's gift of sex. Whereas, we believe every human being capable of sexual expression born under Adam has a flawed sexual disposition for which each person remains individually responsible. Whereas temptations or desires for sexual expression outside of a heterosexual covenant marriage do not in and of themselves constitute sin. Whereas one sins when he or she willfully entertains sexual thoughts or actions outside of a heterosexual covenant marriage. Whereas God created the sacred institution of marriage to be both heterosexual and monogamous by nature and anything outside of this distorts the biblical picture of marriage. Whereas the Bible explicitly condemns joining in marriage a Christian believer and a non-Christian. Whereas we believe lifelong singleness and thus celibacy is neither imperfect, incomplete, nor insufficient for human flourishing, but instead offers Christian believers unique opportunities for dedication of time and energy for Christian service. Therefore, be it resolved that we, the members of Cornerstone Baptist Church, seek to speak carefully compassionately and clearly concerning the Bible's teaching on marriage, God's great gift of sexual expression within marriage and all forms of sexual sin. Be it further resolved that we seek to be honest about our flawed sexual dispositions and exhort one another to pursue purity in our fallen world. It means you're with me. That's good. That's good. Um, if your neighbor's asleep, turn their paper for them. All right. Be it further resolved that we seek to live carefully, honestly, and lovingly with one another as a covenant church body while understanding that none of us will be fully freed from sexual temptation, thoughts, or even actions that are sinful until we are transformed in the full consummation of the kingdom. Be it further resolved. 
We will seek to minister to those within our church and those outside our church who actively struggle with sexual brokenness yet strive to not act on such desires and pursue biblical sexual purity. Such persons include, but are not limited to, and those who struggle with same-sex attraction, pedophilic desire, and all forms of heterosexual lust. Be it further resolved that we will lovingly discipline any member who habitually unrepentantly engages in sexual acts outside of a heterosexual monogamous marital relationship. Be it further resolved that we will not allow into membership any person who willfully, consistently, and unrepentantly practices sexual acts outside of a heterosexual monogamous marital relationship. Such acts include, but are not limited to, heterosexual sex sex acts outside of marriage, all forms of homosexual sex acts, all forms of pedophilic sex acts, and sex acts between humans and non-humans. Be it further resolved that we will not encourage, administer, facilitate, condone, or promote any wedding that would culminate in a union that is not both heterosexual and monogamous, or would culminate in the union of a non-Christian with a Christian. Be it further resolved, we will encourage those who struggle with same-sex attractions to pursue celibacy and thus singleness as a legitimate option whereby one may still fully flourish and live a holy and complete life, and be it finally resolved that we will seek to encourage those who have been given a gift of singleness to remain single so as to devote more time and attention to the kingdom of God. So this is our uh, statement. All the full resolution does is it takes every whereas and every resolved, and it both argues for and explains what is behind that whereas and resolve. In particular, we need to show where we get it from the Word of God. And so that's what the full resolution does. That's what we'll be giving over to the deacons. And uh, God willing, we'll have that emailed out to you by the end of this week. Let me pray for us, and I'm going to hand it over to Pastor Charlie. Let's pray.